I want to look at Genesis chapter 4 today, Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read probably verse 1 through 16, but there's really just a few verses I really want to focus on today. But I think it's good to get the context of the story, and so we'll start with Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 through, I believe, 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. When Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so this is a familiar story, again, to most of us looking here at the story of Cain and Abel. Of course, this is what we have as the first recorded murder in history. Now, as we've talked about before, the book of Genesis covers a tremendous amount of time, so we don't know exactly how long it was from the uh, casting out of the garden of Adam and Eve until when this took place, but we would assume there's been some decent amount of time to have come through here. And what we see here are some very, very important lessons for us today that we should um, always be remembering. Uh, just real quickly to point out, of course, Abel says he was a shepherd, uh, specifically of sheep. And I think it's important to notice in here that he brought forth as a sacrifice, as a way to worship God, the firstborn and the fat portions, or you could say the best portions of what he had as an offering. Cain, on the other hand, worked the ground as a farmer, if you will. Don't know what he grew, but he grew something. And he brought forth as a sacrifice crops. Now, there's some question about what went on here, but I think it's very obvious that he brought forth just some portion of his crops where it is emphasized that Cain, I'm sorry, Abel brought forth not only the first, but also the best. So there was first and best, and a blood sacrifice. So there's a couple of possible things here. One is it could be that uh, Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's because it was a blood sacrifice. And we see that 
all throughout the scriptures. It's very likely that the Lord had told them what they should be using to sacrifice and to worship. And it could be that they had to bring forth a blood sacrifice. So Abel was doing that while Cain was not. It could also be, as I pointed out, that Abel was bringing forth the best of what he had, or Cain was just bringing forth something of what he had. Again, we see this kind of inlaid in the text that there's some discussion or some emphasis that one was bringing forth the best and the other was just bringing something. And then, of course, we cannot forget that there could be some type of motive or attitude that Cain had that was unacceptable to God. Unacceptable attitude. We see this again throughout Scripture where we are warned that if we have something against someone before we make an offering, we should go and settle it with that person and then come back and give an offering. We see it time and time again discussed that we must have the right heart and the right motivations when it comes to worshiping God. And we know that God sees the heart. In fact, 1 Samuel 16 and 17 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, nor the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so it's entirely possible that any of these or all of these are reasons why God was not accepting of Cain's sacrifice and Cain's worship. It could be that his intention, his heart, if you will, was wrong. It could be that he was not giving the best of what he had, or it could be that he was not giving a blood sacrifice as he was required. And to contrast this with Abel, it seems as though he had the proper motivation, procedure, and relationship with God. He was doing it, assumingly, because it was what he was motivated and desired to do, had the right heart, and was offering in the right way. We see some hint of this when both these men are discussed in the book of Hebrew. Chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Though with him he was commended as righteous, God commended him by accepting his gifts. And so we see that Cain had, I'm sorry, Abel had a certain level of faith that went along with the sacrifice, which God was willing to accept. And then skip a few verses to verse 6, and it says, Without faith, again, this is important, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. And so having some type of faith and the proper motivation, I think, is highly important if we're going to actually worship God and to do it correctly. But I really want to focus today, now that we know some of the backstory and some of the discussion about the sacrifice, I want to focus on verse 5, 6, and 7, and just maybe loosely discuss verse 8 today, because I think there's great understanding that can be had here. So we see where this is set up, that Cain and Abel, uh, Cain is not getting along with his brother Abel. There's probably jealousy and resentment and things like this. We see this hinted at both in the way that these verses are described and then when they're discussed later on. And the jealousy and hatred is probably in part because Cain is not doing what he should do according to the will of God. In fact, it says in verse 5, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Very angry is an interesting way to be with God and with his brother. And so in verse 5, again, we see the extremely angry, indignant, if you want to say. Another translation, when it talks about his face falling, says he looked hostile and annoyed. Hostile and annoyed. 
So it wasn't just so much that he internally was angry, he was very angry, but his outward appearance was one of being annoyed and angry, likely at his brother and maybe even likely at God. And so we see in verse 5 this important thing. He was very angry. And then what we see is so interesting, and we see this time and time again through Scripture in many stories where God comes directly to someone to talk with them. And you notice the Lord doesn't come and strike Cain down or give him a lecture on how could you possibly be so disappointed? Look at all that I do for you. No, he came to him in love as a loving father, as we see repeatedly in Scripture, and began to ask him a question. So in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? So the Lord approaches Cain and says to him, Why are you angry? Why are you showing this outward resentment? And why are you so upset? Why are you so annoyed? Now again, I think this is really important. We will all experience times in our lives that we'll be more like Cain. That we will be upset, annoyed, angry, unhappy about a situation, both internally and externally. And what we must remember is that our loving Father is going to come to us and inquire to us, what is wrong? Now, He doesn't come necessarily to tackle us and say, how could you possibly have these feelings of resentment? How could you possibly be jealous? But He's going to come to you in a loving way, a way that a good loving Father will, and say to you, what is wrong? And we must also remember, as we've studied, hopefully so well, it's not like God didn't know what the problem was. He knew exactly what was going on. But he came and he said to Cain, why are you upset? Why do you look so upset? And this is, again, so important. Now, why is he asking this question? Again, it's not because he didn't know better. It's the same reason he asked Cain's mom and dad, the same question when he went walking in the garden. He knew exactly. But by asking the question, he is giving an opportunity to bring into sharp contrast into his mind the fact that he's wrong and then give him an opportunity to do what? To repent of it, you see? And so when God confronts us today, when he does it in a loving way, he is giving us the opportunity to repent of the wrong behavior, the wrong thoughts, the wrong actions that we have. So God said in verse 6 to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? And then in verse 7, he begins to tell us something very interesting. This is where I want to spend the emphasis for today. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, as I said, I want to spend a few minutes looking at this because there's some very important and key concepts here. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Well, what is the well that's being talked about here? I think it is implied that God has given instruction to Cain and Abel and um, Adam and Eve and told them how they should live. We know this through multiple scriptures that God has told us, even from the very acts of creation, how we are to worship and how we are to think about Him, how we are to behave. And so what does it mean by doing well? I think it's by believing what God has told them and then being obedient to it. 
We've talked about obedience on a number of occasions. Obedience is more than just listening, it's actually doing. And so God is reminding Cain, I have told you what to do, and to do well means that you are going to be obedient to it. You're going to do what I'm telling you to do. Now, I think there's some room to discuss here that there was probably more going on in Cain's life than just an issue of whether or not he was sacrificing and worshiping properly. I think you could probably conclude, and some of it's based on the language and the way that these verses are structured, that Cain was not living a righteous life. It wasn't just that he failed to give one sacrifice and God came down and Cain was very angry with God. I think it was very likely Cain was living a lifestyle that was not approved by God, which is why God said, if you do well, you will be approved. I will accept what you're doing if you are doing what you are supposed to do. Now, one possible way for this, if you skip forward a couple thousand years and you go into the law that's given to the Hebrews, we see that there are many different types of offerings. One of them is a sacrifice by blood. But if you recall, there are many other sacrifices as well, such as grains and oils and things of that nature. But generally, a blood sacrifice is a guilt sacrifice, right? That is to atone for having done something wrong, whereas most or maybe all of the grain and oil-based sacrifices are a praise offering to God. And so it may not be necessarily that Cain was giving a sacrifice that wasn't required, but the wrong one. In other words, if Cain had a lot of guilt in his life, if he was living a sinful life, He shouldn't come and give God praise. He should come and sacrifice a blood offering for his guilt, you see. And so there is some idea that maybe Cain was living a life and he should have been offering a blood sacrifice to atone for his sin, not one of praise that comes from the ground. If you do well, will you not be accepted? This is a good question for us today. If we do what God wants us to do, he will accept us. That is what we should strive for. And then he goes on and says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Uh, This is such an unusual thing. This word is only used a few other times in the scripture. And sometimes it's interpreted correctly as somebody or an animal that's laying down. But in this case, it seems very likely that crouching is the proper interpretation. And when we think about an animal that is crouching like a lion or a tiger or some type of predator, maybe something that we've seen, like a cat or something that's about to catch a bird to make it more realistic, but again, think about more dangerous. The idea of crouching means you're, you're about ready to pounce on something, to grasp at something. Like, again, a predatory animal that's going to jump out and grab something. We see in 1 Peter 5, 8, we're reminded to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And this is how these types of animals hunt. They kind of hide behind something. They get ready. The animal, the victim, can't see necessarily very well. And the animal pounces and captures and kills the other animal. And this is really important for us to remember. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is to control us. So when we think about how sin goes on in our lives, we need to remember that sin is sitting there, crouching, waiting to jump out and to grab us. 
We tend to go through our lives never worried about these things. We tend to just have blinders on and just keep on walking, pretending like there's nothing out there that will get us. We live our entire lives concerned about sin the same way that I'm concerned about a large leopard reaching out and getting me on the way home. As in, I'm not at all concerned about that. And from a large mammal trying to eat me, that's a correct assumption in this country. But that's not the case for sin. And so we must live our lives, as God is warning Cain, to be careful because sin is crouching, waiting to tear into us, to pounce on us like a large lion. Now, if you think about this, if you've ever seen this on television or watched this on animals, maybe you've experienced it yourself. If you saw and identified that there was something waiting to pounce on you, crouching in the corner, you'd be far more alert to turn and go the other way, wouldn't you? That's exactly how we should consider sin. When we are tempted to do things that we ought not to do, let us not forget that we can't just have a little bit of fun and it's okay. Because sin is waiting to leap on us, to devour us. And we must be on guard for it. And it's far more better to know that there's something lurking, waiting for us, and to be ready for it, and be ready by doing what is good, than to be caught surprised. We must do well. We must be obedient. We must love the Lord, and we must be on guard. So sin is crouching at our door. And then it says, its desire is contrary to it, but you must rule over it. This desire is a longing or a craving or uh, wanting to be dominant. Now, interestingly, if you go back to the previous chapter in Genesis 3.16, we see in here that God is telling Eve that because of the fall, your desire shall be contrary or over your husband. So we see this very same comment and concept right close together in the same scripture. Now, again, as I mentioned, this may be hundreds of years later, but this idea is still prevalent, that this desire, that sin's desire, its longing, its craving, you can even say its intimate desire, is to have power to rule over us. We cannot, on our own, stand up to sin and think we can handle it. This is a real problem that we have, I think, in our society today, and especially among Christians. We think, well, I can just do a little bit of this, and it's okay, even though I know that I shouldn't. But the reality is that sin is something we cannot control, and we are far better to avoid the crouching sin that's trying to take control over us than to play with it and to worry about whether or not we can just do enough to be okay. Now, its desire, it says, is to be contrary to you. Contrary, in other words, the exact opposite of what is good for you. It wants to overpower you. It wants to control. It wants to dominate you. And that brings us to a very interesting question. If sin's desire is to, con is to uh, control you, to dominate you, to have power over you, what is controlling or powering you today? Is it sin that has crouched and entangled you, or is it the Spirit of God? Proverbs 25 and 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 
And so our self-control is certainly important, but more important than just our self-control is our spiritual control. If we don't want sin to pounce on us, to dominate us, and to control us, we must rely on the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us to overcome it, to do well. 2 Timothy 1 and 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you want greater self-control, then you want the Spirit of God to be in control. If you want greater power in your life, then you want the Spirit of God to be in control. If you want greater love in your life, then you want the Spirit of God to be in control. If you want to do well, then you want the Spirit of God living in you, guiding you so that you can do well. Sin's desire is contrary, but you must rule over it. The only way we rule over it is through the Spirit of God. Time and time again, all through Scripture, from the beginning to the end, we see a frequent admonishment. We simply stand against it. We don't have to go out and fight against it. We are told time and time again simply to stand. Stand, stand, stand. God will do the fighting. We must do well. We must do good. Sin's desire is contrary, the exact opposite of what we need. Its desire is to dominate us. We are simply to stand against it and have the self-control that comes from the Spirit of God. So let me just reiterate here. Why did God question Cain? Why did he even go and ask him again? The same reason he went and questioned his parents. He wanted them to be aware of where they had fallen and to repent and do right so that sin, again, wouldn't rule over them. It's the same reason that he questions us today. It's the same reason that your conscience will often tell you, I don't think I should do this. I don't think I should go there. I don't think I should say this. When God, through His Spirit, is giving you advice, you had better listen to it. Or sin that is contrary to you will begin to rule you. We must be aware and not push it away when God speaks to us. He doesn't do it with anger. He does it with love and compassion. I mean, after all, He knew what Cain was going to do. And he still went to him. And he gave him the warning that he can give us today. If you, not, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That message is the same today as it was thousands of years ago. We must not entertain sin. We must not allow it. We must rule over it with the help of the Spirit of God. Cain didn't. He chose otherwise. At some time later, we don't know when, he took his brother out where no one else was and murdered him. This is what happens when we allow sin into our lives. It will dominate us. It will control us and it will take us further than we ever intended to go. 
But God gives us a chance, a chance to be redeemed, a chance to do the right thing. And 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God will come to you time and time and time again and say to you, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? Be careful. And it's our duty to accept that, to ask for forgiveness and to do the right thing, to do what the scripture says here as well. And so we must, if we need to, confess and repent, which often means a turning away, right? To turn away from what? From the sin that is going to capture us. So it's not just enough to confess and say, yeah, I know you were right. We must actually stop doing and do the opposite of the whatever it is that we were told to stop doing. So confess and repent, or the sin is crouching at the door, ready to take us. Now, the beautiful part about all this is that Christ died upon the cross as our substitute so that we can have eternal forgiveness, so that we can be made right to live a life with Him, so that we can live this life without being controlled by sin. Because make no mistake about it, if you are not saved, then sin has complete control and dominance over you. You just don't think that it does. That's why we talk about breaking the shackles of sin and being free from the burden of sin. Because sin is what you are in. And you are so heart sick or sin sick that you don't even know it. You do not realize that you are controlled and captured by the beast, by the devil that is ruling over you, that God came and sent his only son to die to free you from that burden. So you do not have to be ruled by sin, but can be ruled by his Holy Spirit. Hebrew 12 and 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Ever catch that? How is the author of Hebrews here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, comparing the blood of Christ with the blood of Abel? Both were killed and were innocent. Both were murdered. But only the blood of one who is completely righteous and holy, Jesus Christ, can forgive you. And so his blood is better. A better sacrifice. One that can save us from our sins. It's not just that Jesus was a good person and killed unjustly. It's that he was a son of God. And that sacrifice can free us from the sin that wants to rule over us, that is crouching in the doorway to get us. And so the question and the concerns that I have for today are this. For those who have experienced the saving grace of God, we can still be caught up in sin. We can still have sin crouching at the door, waiting to get us if we do not do well. And so question yourself, are you doing well? Are you living the life that God wants you to live? Are you doing the things that he wants you to do? Are you staying away from the things he wants you to stay away from? 
And those who've never been saved, this too has great importance to you to understand that you are already captured by sin. And the only way out is not just to be a good person, to do well as in, well, I'm going to be nice to people, or I'm going to come to church, or I'm going to give money to this charity. The only way to do well is to have the faith that the Hebrew letter said that Abel had. That faith led him to do the right sacrifice at the right time in the right way to give honor and glory to God. And so you too must have the right faith and give up the sin that is in your life to be made whole and holy, to be put on the path, to be released from the bonds of sin, to be released from the desires of this world, and to no longer be dominated by the sin, but to be free because Christ has paid the ultimate penalty and the ultimate sacrifice.